almost a ritual. At any given time, a certain kind of politician must be trying to capitalize on concerns that some new medium is dangerous to kids. They did it with comic books. They did it with music lyrics. They did it with video games. It's always got to be something. Right now, it's social media's turn, and the fear-mongering is at fever pitch. When her husband, California Governor Gavin Newsom, signed AB 2273 into law, Jennifer Siebel Newsom declared in a press release, quote, I am terrified of the effects technology addiction and saturation are having on our children and their mental health. More recently, discussing his intent to sign SB 152 and HB 311, Utah Governor Spencer Cox talked about social media in the same breath as tobacco, guns, and opioids. Quote, this is something that is killing our kids, he said. Governments in California, Utah, and elsewhere want to protect the kids from social media. But maybe what we really need is to protect the kids from the government. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. My guest today needs no introduction, certainly not in this neck of the woods. Mike Masnick is the founder and editor of Tech Dirt. We mention him and his work on the show all the time, of course. I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that if it weren't for him, I don't know how I'd keep up with the torrent of stuff going on in the tech, legal, and policy world. As Mike recently wrote, the moral panic over social media keeps getting stupider. Indeed. <laughs> Mike, it is so good to have you on. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I feel like that was not my most eloquent of lines, but <laughs> maybe born out of frustration. <laughs> well, as Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, sometimes it takes a blunt object to pierce a thick hide. <laughs> So good to have you. I mean, there's just a thousand topics we could have had you on in a thousand past episodes, but this is a good one. You've done a lot of writing on this one. It's an important issue. It's sort of the next wave in uh, the tech panic, maybe along with AI fear. That's a different mm -hmm. episode. AB 2273 is called the Age Appropriate Design Code. And so California got out first with that one last year. Those Utah laws I mentioned are, well, I, bills I mentioned are now laws. They've just been signed. Both of these sets of laws are not slated to go into effect until, I want to say, early next year, but that's going to give us plenty of time to litigate over them. They are coming down the pike. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say they would have a transformative effect on the internet. I think it's really unfortunate that the it's called the age appropriate design code that makes me think of like making sure that the Coco Melon website or the Sesame Street website is designed appropriately or maybe something that is aimed at young teens, 12, 13 year olds. But this is actually the way I think of it um, is both sort of a First Amendment travesty and like a building code for the Internet. There's been this. Certainly, I refer to it as a moral panic uh, about social media, and there's this this feeling of like something needs to be done. That kids are using social media, and adults don't understand it. And there are, I would argue, fairly cherry picked 
pieces of different studies over cherry-picked timeframes that suggest that, you know, there have been some some issues with, with rising concerns about mental health, about suicidal ideation, um, and other things among children. And rather than taking a deeper look at why that might be happening, a bunch of people have just taken the correlation of, gee, kids use TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat, uh, and decided that that must be it. And the details on supporting that and showing the actual evidence for that is actually surprisingly weak. And there's plenty of evidence that actually contradicts it. I think it would be interesting to, to do more thorough and thoughtful reviews of you know what what is happening and what the concern should be but rather than that as lawmakers are prone to do they sort of rush into the breach <laughs> with ideas that have not been particularly well thought out and you know it's it's very much a something must be done this is something we will do it kind of approach and so the the different states have all taken slightly different approaches and california was the first it took the this age appropriate design code which is which is in theory and they sort of describe it as being based on a law that has the exact same name in the uk the age appropriate design code in the uk which passed a couple of years ago um in practice the california age appropriate design code is actually fairly different than the one that is in the uk and of course, the U.S. and the U.K. have have uh, seriously different legal regimes. So even if they were identical, they would be playing in different worlds, and it wouldn't be a, a fair comparison. The one thing that that is interesting, and I found concerning, is that both of the age-appropriate design codes, the one in the U.K. and the U.S., were effectively designed slash you know drafted slash supported slash sponsored by a baroness in the UK, Baroness Kidron, who is a, a filmmaker. She made, she directed the Bridget Jones, one of like the second Bridget Jones movie, not the, the, not the original, but the sequel. And then, you know, some time ago, she made a documentary about kids and phones that was this sort of moral panicky oh my gosh, the kids are using their phones and decided that something must be done and has said that she's like thrown her career away to save the children and, you know, pushed for this age-appropriate design code in the UK and then was a, a driving, a major driving force behind it in California with what appeared to me to be very little recognition of one sort of US constitutional law norms, uh, how any of this works. And yet, are, are the California lawmakers who in theory should have a better understanding of the US Constitution, they just went with it. And they just You're said, actually okay, making me think it's never occurred to me until just this moment that you know, you also have Alistair McTaggart in the privacy yeah. sphere. So California <laughs> is like beholden to these oligarchs making their laws. Anyway, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, California is this weird thing where literally like outside organizations can be sponsors of bills, which, you know, it's, you know, normally like we think of Congress, you have, you know, the, the authors of the bill who are elected officials are the sponsors of the bills. 
But in California, you can have organizations, private organizations, including companies. But in in uh, the case of AB two two seven three, the sponsor of that bill was uh, this organization called Five Rights, which is uh, Baroness Kidron's organization. And you're talking about something that's distinct from backing initiatives, right? Which yes. you can also do. So you yes. can go direct democracy. You can do that. Like, okay, yes. I'm not going to get a sidetrack. That, that's 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 the, the Alistair McTaggart yeah. route for the privacy laws. But yeah, that is a whole different uh, different issue. This is actually sponsoring bills. To some extent, this is a, a tangent, right? Because whatever, maybe there are good bills that are, are come that come about through this process, and maybe there are bad bills, and we should focus on the the actual text of the bill and what it does. But it's it's really problematic, and 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 like at least in my experience, I'm I'm sort of everyone that I've talked about this with within the sort of you know California sphere, they seem really taken in by. You know, I, I think I think the the Baroness is is a very good storyteller. I mean, she was a Hollywood filmmaker. She should be a good storyteller. So she tells a really good story, and people buy into it, even though it's somewhat fictional. Uh, you know, it, it may be you know based on a true story. The the way that like Fargo is based on a true story, where you have some some loose connection to reality, and you turn it into this reality, and then you legislate as if as if that reality is true, and so. You know the 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 bill itself is this you know we must protect the children kind of bill and it has all of these elements to it that are effectively impossible for most websites to comply with and everyone you know what's been interesting to me and disturbing to me and i, I don't i mean we can go anywhere with this discussion i don't know how deeply we want to go into like the specifics of how how AB two two seven three works. Well, why don't we just yeah? Before you continue, I'll let's pause and I okay. will do a little bit of table setting of how comprehensive euphemistically is the word I'd use. This bill is. I mean, so under AB twenty two seventy three, if you're a company like very small businesses are accepted, but any company basically doing modest amount of commerce on the internet will have to produce these data protection impact assessments. They'll have to do yeah. it for every product, service, and feature on their websites. Um, it's kind of like an environmental impact statement, the kind of stuff that makes it hard to build physical things in California, actually. They have to explain the purpose of the product, service, or feature. They have to explain whether it would attract children to the website. They have to explain what data it will collect or process. And it will have to speculate about whether it could expose children to potentially harmful content, whatever that might mean. There's a lot more than that. And then even apart from the DPIAs, they have to figure out whether their websites offer a, quote, high level of privacy to children by default. They have to come up with plans to mitigate or eliminate the risk of material detriment to children uh, that might arise from data management practices. Put a pin in the fact that the data management aspect is kind of a Trojan horse to be a speech regulation. They have to guess whether the websites use dark patterns, which is a term that AB 2273 only vaguely defines in a way that could just diminish children's, quote, well-being. Well-being is not exactly a legal term of art. One of my favorite provisions is they have to draft their terms of service in language suited to the age of children likely to access the website. 
which uh, is impossible for <laughs> a certain level down you go in terms of age. This is a good one. A company has to monitor whether it is considering the best interests of children and prioritizing the privacy, safety, and well-being of children over commercial interests when creating their websites, which is just sort of a general feel good. Uh, <laughs> you were talking about storytelling. That is that is like that's yeah. not a legal regulation. That's a feel good story that you are trying to make into a law. So and that's that's just kind of the surface. I mean, that's not yeah. everything. So and, and there's uh, there's a really important point that I want to bring up about it, which is you keep talking about all these things about uh, about how the regulation is, you know, determining like the impact on children. Children in this context is defined as anyone under the age of 18 and, and there's no distinction. So effectively, you have to treat anyone who is 17 the same as if they were five. And that is really weird because if you know children, <laughs> you know, anywhere in that age range, they're very different. And they change over time. And so, you know, and, and the bill apply, there are a couple of, of, you know, you mentioned, you know, you, you basically, the very, very smallest of companies, it won't apply to, but many, many, many companies, even relatively small companies, it will apply to. And it applies to them if they are likely to be accessed by a child. But again, child being anyone under 18. And, and so if you think high schoolers, my, and with likely, I should add, defined yes. in a really amorphous way, where if I'm your lawyer and I'm defining likely, it's likely sounds <laughs> kind of like it's got content. But as a lawyer, I would have to tell basically any website you should assume right here that you will be accessed. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, and 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 that's that's a concern as opposed to like you know the existing federal laws around children on the internet is COPPA, which has all sorts of problems on its own. But at least that one is designed to, you know, to, to only apply to websites that are directly targeting children, you know, that, that intend and want to, to have children, in that case, children being defined as those under 13. I have lots of problems with COPPA, but I, I think it's, it is a more defensible setup than likely to be accessed and anyone under 18. You know, and, and the point is, like, I looked at the, among many other things, I looked at the bill in terms of, like, Tectored. Like if I am, am under this bill and I think it's unclear if Tectored is officially covered by the bill, which is a, a separate problem. The fact that I can't, I can't tell for sure <laughs> if we are covered or not, which means that any, any lawyer that we go to will tell us, well, you have to act as if you are covered by it because, you know, it's, it's not, not really clear at all if we are. And then the question is, so if I'm looking at it and will children, are children likely to access the site? It's like, we, I've been writing about a related issue lately, which is school districts suing social media for all sorts of things, uh, which I think is kind of ridiculous, but I'm writing about these, these lawsuits, which may likely be of interest to high school students, especially students in the districts where these lawsuits are happening. So in writing about those cases, is that, you know, mean that I am admitting that I am likely to be accessed by children? And will reading about the stupid lawsuits that their districts are uh, engaging in, will that cause them distress? Do I have to write a report about the distress that my coverage of the stupid lawsuits that their district is, is engaging in and then figure out how to mitigate that distress? And does that mean that I have to write differently? 
Does that mean I have to pull punches because I don't want to distress the children over the ridiculous lawsuit that their district is providing? Yeah, it, 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 the whole thing, the whole setup of this is crazy, makes no sense, is impossible to comply with. And, you know, in my case, as a, as a news organization, as an organization that produces, you know, what I believe is First Amendment protected content, effectively, this is telling me I need to change the way I write. And that should be a fairly obvious First Amendment concern because I can't write anything that upsets high schoolers anymore, (laughs) which which seems wrong. (laughs) Well, it's funny. You said there's so many directions we could go. And then it took me so long just to run through all the requirements (laughs) of the bill that I don't know if we ended up on track of where you wanted to go. But a good direction now to take it is, yes, the First Amendment, because we have a lawsuit. So Net Choice, the trade group, has challenged this law. And their lead argument is that the thing is basically a Rube Goldberg machine style system of prior restraints. If you have to file a DPIA setting things out just as you just did, um, and that stops you from writing the way you otherwise would, you can call that a prior restraint. You can call that a First Amendment violation of your editorial discretion, uh, however you want to sort of package it. But the the thing, one of the many very bothersome things about this law, and it's true of a lot of laws in this space right now, is it is packaged as a privacy law and it is packaged as a children's law. And ultimately, it is a speech law. And the more you dig into it, the more you wonder to what extent it was ever intended to be the other things and is actually just meant to be a speech law. If they don't understand the degree to which it's a speech law, then it really is um, a, a monument of incompetence. Because to use another example, you know, if you're the New York Times, if you're a news website, and any website of that size is going to meet the access by children, I'm sorry, like you just, you have so many right. millions of users, you're going to have plenty of children. Can you put the photo on your front page showing the suicide bombing, the car bombing, or the missile right. strike in the war zone? Just the news. Um, right. Can you do that? And when you put it that way, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how you could think of that example and understand that that example falls squarely in the law and not understand that this is a First Amendment issue, that this is a speech law, this is a speech code. Well, to some extent, you know, this gets to a, a larger issue that has been happening in the tech policy world over the last, I would say, decade or so, which is that there have been so many parts of of the tech policy world that have been sort of siloed um and yet they impact each other and I, and i think about this in the context of the gdpr in the eu which you know the general data protection regulation people listening to this i'm sure know about it it's hard not to know about it at this point you know it was passed about five years ago or went into effect about five years ago um and you know is this data protection law People get mad at me when I say it's a privacy law, but it is, it is intended to be a, a you know an effective uh, attempt at regulating privacy. And it was written by people who had an expertise and focus in the privacy realm. And so you had all these sort of privacy experts um, and data protection experts who were uh, instrumental in sort of crafting that law. And what they did not have and seemed to avoid were speech experts, uh, experts in free expression. And therefore, when the GDPR was going into effect and suddenly free speech people started to say, hey, wait a second, you have some provisions in here that are problematic for speech. 
the the people who were supporting the bill were like, no, 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 this is not a speech. This is not a speech regulation. This is purely a data protection regulation. And yet, because of that, you have things like in the GDPR, what is officially known as the right to erasure, but is is more specifically known or more generally known as the right to be forgotten, is this idea that among the data that you can control as a data protection uh, measure are news articles about you. you know, And this is why we have, there are lots of examples, including there are tech dirt articles that if you search for certain people's names on Google in the EU, the articles about them on tech dirt will not show up because they have exercised their right to be forgotten slash right to erasure. And those articles are hidden uh, from, from Google search results. Um, ridiculously, by the way, in some cases. The point is that privacy and speech are not two separate silos. You can't completely separate the two. And if you are designing laws about one without considering the other, you're going to run into problems. And yet, that is what, that's what the EU has done. And now it's what lots of other places are doing as well. And California in particular seems to be, you know, doing this all the time with no consideration of how those two things play together and why their privacy law, which whether you believe it's put in place for, the, for good intentions or not, has real impacts on speech, which they refuse to grapple with and, and seem to be extremely upset if anyone sort of brings it up and points it out. So the way that a key provision of AB 2273 is packaged is that it forbids spreading content to children that might harm them or their well-being yes. or whatever in a way that leverages or uses their personal information. And the yeah. personal information is defined so broadly as to basically mean if you are a social media platform and you have a news feed for a minor and that is what generates the content that traumatizes them, boom, you're you're in this law. You are now violating AB 2273. So this beginning of, oh, well, it's only tied to their data or the use of their information. So this is a privacy or data protection law. I hope it's clear. I just gave an extraordinarily simple explanation of how that is. That's no, that's, that's just given the way the internet works. And it's not just social media. I mean, it's search engines, it's all kinds of other stuff, but social media is a good vivid example here. It is going to the heart of speech online. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many different things. <laughs> there's so many different issues I could get to with, with this. It, it, it you know, to some extent, like thinking about this, the speech element of it and this idea of like what is traumatizing children conceptually, right? Nobody wants to traumatize children. And, and I, and I understand the concerns there, but you know, we also do need to educate children and teach children. And you look at the kinds of things that have, you know, I, I think of things like Grimm's fairy tales, right? which if you look at Grimm's fairy tales, which were read to children all the time, told to children, they're horrifying. They are traumatic, almost every one of them. A lot of the fairy tales that we hear today that are based on Grimm are the you know very cl cleaned up versions of them. 
go go look at the original Grimm's fairy tales. Well, it, and it, going to your point of how it's a continuum as your kids get older. So my kids are very, very young, like two, three, just learning to talk. Right. And we realized just the other day, you know, the song about like rain, rain, go away. Like the old man, he bumped his head and he couldn't get up. And the more like, yeah. what happened to that guy? Is he okay? <laughs> For like a two-year-old is the kind of thing we're considering. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's, there's lots of things, right? There, Like almost every like children's song, like what, you know, uh, I'm, I'm suddenly blanking on it. You know, there's the, the the cradle in the tree that the, the, the tree branch breaks and falls down, right? How about That's, a ring, ring around the rosy, which is yeah, about the Black Plague, right? Right, there's, they're, they're, oh, these are, they're all terrifying, right? Every one of these stories is terrifying. You know, the, uh, you know, little red riding, Hood, like she's, she's eaten by a wolf. <laughs> like, you know, these, <laughs> these are all, they're, they're traumatizing, you know, if you think about it. And yet, you know, we've always historically, we've used them to sort of teach morals to children. And, and, but under this law, like, could you have a website that just posted Grimm's fairy tales? I don't know that you could. I don't. I don't think you could under this law. I think because, it'd be in the heartland of this law. Yeah. You'd yeah. You have to be monetizing it in some way. I think would be. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. But so say say you're you know say you're you're putting ads on on a, a website. I mean that you know then there's the there are a bunch of issues with that. But like, you know, I, I don't think you could because you would have to talk about like how how are you going? You'd have to write a report about everything first of all. But then you'd have to talk about how you're minimizing the the traumatic nature to children, and therefore, do you have to rewrite all of Grimm's fairy tales to have happy endings? I mean, like I don't know how you would possibly do that. And you know, so that's that's where like the speech element gets to it. But you know, that leads to a, a sort of separate but related issue, which is that so much of this sort of protect the children thinking is about effectively like shielding children as opposed to preparing children for the world. And, and, you know, and I've written a couple times about this where it's like, uh, and I, I talk about like, are we, are we trying to sort of create Disneyland on, on the, on the internet or turn the internet into Disneyland? And, and my argument is like, Disneyland is a fun place to visit for kids. It's great to bring them there. It's a good, good vacation, but I don't think anyone would think it's a smart idea to like raise their kids in Disneyland and sort of like, and then imagine that when they turned 18, you would suddenly take them out of Disneyland and think that they could operate uh, successfully in the world outside of Disneyland. Like that's not the way the world works. You, you know, Parents and other caregivers and teachers and schools are supposed to be preparing kids in an age-appropriate way. That's what that's what they do for like how to deal with the real world. So you don't introduce them to to you know the the worst things, obviously, but like you should be sort of preparing them for what the world is. As they get older, you teach them more things and you you explain to them that the world is not perfect and that there are dangerous things out there and how to deal with that, how to go to a responsible adult if you come across something that is that is risky or dangerous or if you're concerned or if you feel uncomfortable. There are all of these lessons that, you know, in theory, uh, schools and parents are supposed to be teaching their children and, and those lessons change as, as they get older and as, as is appropriate. But 
this law is basically saying, don't do any of that. Mm-hmm. This law is saying, keep it so perfectly clean that any five-year-old can go on your website and not feel threatened or upset in any way and never then teach them how to actually operate in the real world. And then at age 18, suddenly like turn that off and then let them go free and, and do, you know, and, and experience this without the tools or training, you know, it's, and, and, you know, I, I hesitate to do this because, and, and you mentioned this in, in the intro, that a lot of people, and this comes up all the time, people compare social media to smoking or alcohol. I, I was in a, a conversation uh, earlier this week, which I can't detail, where, where they compared it to chocolate. It was like, it was like, there was like this debate, is social media more like chocolate or is it more like smoking? And all of that is stupid because it's speech, right? Sp- Speech is not a consumable like <laughs> smoking or chocolate. It doesn't affect your body in the same way. It's, it's a different category altogether. So there's all sorts of problems with this idea of that. But the one, the one thing that I do think is, is useful that people have talked about is like the idea of like, uh, you know, total prohibition on drinking alcohol before you're 21 what happens is that kids are told you can't have any of it, you can't have any of it, you can't have any of it. And then suddenly, you know, they don't wait till they're 21. But, you know, once, you know, usually when kids go off to college or whatever, or, you know, in in high school, somebody gets access to alcohol, and they have no idea how to handle it. And they go crazy, and they cause a lot of problems, as opposed to sort of training people or, or, you know, getting kids to understand the risks, the trade-offs, how to you know, how to handle these things responsibly. That's important. And yet we don't seem to want to do that. And, you know, I I think there's, there's a way that, you know, we should, you know, we should be focusing on like educating kids on the fact that the internet is not always safe in the same world, in the same way that like, you know, when my kids were three years old, I wouldn't let them just wander around the neighborhood free, but now that they're older and they know how to, you know, keep themselves safe and, you know, know where to go, like, yeah, they can wander the neighborhood. They can go to their friend's house without having to, to have a, you know, have me walking alongside them to make sure they're safe. You sort of teach them how to recognize what's safe and what is not and how to deal with things that are not safe. But all of these attempts to, to you know, make the internet safe for children is effectively hiding all of that and not even giving you a chance to to teach kids how the real world works and how to protect themselves and how to understand where the risks are and how to act appropriately and all of these things. And I, I don't think that helps in the long run. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of great threads there. So for one thing, there is a line uh, somewhere in the briefs that I liked that it says, you know, the harm, quote unquote, that the law seeks to address that content might damage someone's, quote, well-being is a function of human communication itself. (laughs) So that's one thing that hit me as you were talking. Another one, reality gets a vote. The notion that you can protect your kids. So to get weirdly personal for a moment, like my father recently died. I went up to the hospital to like be there when he died. My kids are very, very young. They are three. So 
we had to introduce the concept of death to them because what were we going to do? Grandpa went to like the county fair. He's not coming back. No, we had to. It was was actually kind of adorable. Um, They got very concerned. And and one of them, they were very concerned. Was he being taken care of? And a little window on a mind of a three-year-old, he started asking questions like, are they cutting his hair? Uh, And that was his worry that this man. Right. Um, And so, but it also demonstrates like they deal, they cope, they adjust. And it's better to expose them to things and talk through it than to just shield them, uh, which ties into the the final thread, at least I'll touch on right now. I, 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 insulted is maybe not quite the right word, but I have kids and we are uh, in some ways, I don't want to make it sound like we're like religious zealots or something, but we're pretty small C conservative parents in terms of like what we want to expose them to. And that's a choice we make. Yeah. We control what is on their tablets. We control how much TV time we they have. My my wife is sort of an iron lady. She just is impervious to their complaints that the TV gets <laughs> turned off after a very set amount of time. I have a lot of confidence that when they get older, if she so chooses, she will be that mom who gives them the dumb phone that you can make calls on and that's it. And they're going to scream bloody murder about, well, all the other kids have it. And she's not going to care because we're parents. Like that's right. our responsibility is like, that's our job to raise our kids in the way that right. we see fit. And for the state to come in and think it's their responsibility, both a, it's just not, I don't want the state to think that's their problem. And then B, it just, you know, they're not doing, it's very unlikely that if you let the state craft things, they're going to do it. And you're just as a parent going to be great. Okay, this is good. The state's taking care of my kid. I don't have to worry about this anymore. It's a terrible idea. But but it goes beyond that even too, because, and, and this is an element that we haven't quite gotten to, which is that, you know, because of the broad definitions in the bill and the the likely to be accessed by anyone under 17 or under 18, that means that every website has to do this. So it's not even just about the content that that children access. It really becomes the content that everybody accesses mm-hmm. because there are two elements to this. One is for everything that that you know the framing of this is a privacy bill. Part of what you have to do in order to comply with the bill is understand the age of your visitors. That means you have to collect a lot of data that you might not otherwise collect. Now, TechDirt, we try to collect as little data as possible about our visitors. I don't care. I don't want to know. We know, you know, basically exactly as much as we need to know to run the service and let people do it. And and we have, you know, worked hard. Honestly, it's difficult to collect as little data as we do about our visitors. But I have no idea how old the people people are on the website, but under this bill, in order to comply with it, I have to have a very good estimate of the age of the people on the website. How do, how do I do that? I am not sure, but it appears to, to comply with the bill. I probably have to figure out a way to start verifying the age of everybody on the website. There are age verification tools out there, but that means a really intrusive process. Whereas right now people can just come and read the read the the website, and I very briefly have an uh, idea of what your IP address is, so we get rid of those. But now I also then have to figure out your age. I don't want that information. I don't want to have to hold on to that information. That becomes a data 
data protection, data privacy nightmare for me, because now I have what I consider to be somewhat sensitive data that I have to protect that I don't want, but I have to in order to comply with this law. And so, you know, your options are to become very, very intrusive, to dig in, like have to get people's IDs or there are these other, like, you know, when I started writing about uh, the, uh, AB2273 originally, the this trade group for age verification technology providers reached out to me and they were like, oh, you know, it's no problem. We have these great technologies now. And they literally said, you know, the the way it's done these days is you just scan your face. And I was like, wait, I don't want to scan the face of everybody who visits my website. And not only that, like the, 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 my favorite one was like, you know, cause people are like, well, you know, we will just hold up pictures of her. Like, no, you know, part of the facial scan technology is that sometimes they have to take a little video and they make you move your head yeah. as proof, proof of lifeness. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, there's no reason for me to do that. So the only way to avoid that, so either you have to do that, scan everybody, get information on everybody, you know, effectively in my mind, violate everybody's privacy and then have to keep track of that data in some way that is that remains safe. Or you dumb down your entire website entirely to the point that like there is nothing offensive or nothing problematic, nothing that could raise any concern, no matter what age it is. So it's not even just like dumbing down the website for children. It becomes dumbing down the website for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't seem right either. Well, and one irony here, maybe the final irony worth mentioning for the moment, uh, you know, going down the list of the many things that bug me here is um, California as a government is terrible at protecting privacy and data. Yes. Uh, they're constantly so, you know, they had that uh, case uh, about the donors and the evidence came yep. out that they can't keep donor, you know, tax privacy. They're bad at they accidentally released like their entire gun owner registry on the Internet. And it just it's so rich that they have these expectations that everybody's going to master data privacy. But when it comes to them, it's just not their problem. And so one thing about this law, the DPIAs that I mentioned, the data privacy impact assessments. For for some reason, they think this matters. Like they, they they think this matters. They've made a provision where, oh well, you Mike Masnick, protector, would just hold on to those. You just keep right. them yourself, unless the AG <laughs> asks you for right. them, and then you have five days to comply. And from there, all bets are off in terms yes. of like I can't trust the California government as far as I can throw them in the sense of like that no one in that government would leak. Google or Facebook's or some other corporation's data, if doing so seems yeah. politically expedient. Um, you guys have totally lost my trust on that. So I don't know. Um, yeah. And, and there's, there, I mean, there are a few issues there that are worth highlighting, uh, you know, and digging in a little bit on those points that, that you raised, which is like, obviously, I thought it was three days, but maybe it was changed to five. I don't, I don't remember exactly that, that you have to turn over the DPIAs to the AG. First of all, like, it gives tremendous power to the attorney general and state attorneys general are sort of notoriously political. It is generally the sort of the stepping stone to either becoming a U.S. senator or the governor of the state. And there is a long history of state attorneys general of all parties using that position politically to attack 
companies that are disfavored for this reason or that. Over and over again, there are many, many examples of this. It just sort of comes with the territory. And here we're giving them the power to basically demand a ridiculous amount of work from any company they want and to get access to all sorts of potentially very private information for those companies. So that is problematic in terms of how that could be abused by any particular attorney, attorney general. But also because of the short time frame, the turnaround, whether it's three days or five days, you have to have those done beforehand. You can't just wait until they ask for it because you know you don't have enough time to put them in place should you get that request. So I think both of those are really, really problematic aspects of the law as well. Let's set aside a little time to now turn to Utah. Um, that one is more explicitly directed at social media. And yeah. some of its provisions are, they just strike me as truly wacky. I mean, if you're <laughs> under 18, you are there's a curfew. You are not yes. allowed on social media between 10:30 p.m. and 6:30 a.m. And I'm sorry to be a bit like playing into stereotypes, but that's like the most Utah thing ever. <laughs> it requires age verification for anyone using social media. It has an addiction provision. Similar <laughs> yes. California side note is considering a bill that would do this that so they may California may not be done, but basically yeah. it says like, don't get your users addicted, but addicted is then defined as like, likes that product a lot, like has a hard time not using it or whatever. Yeah. It allows parents access into their kids' social media. It requires their consent. And by the way, I, to the listeners, I'm bulldozing over all the complications <laughs> and whacking. Yes, like, yes. Sort of, I'm just bullet pointing the provisions here. So please take... A, take that in any direction you want, but I'd love to hear your comment on like the fact that we're getting a sort of red-blue alignment around this moral panic and what's going on with that and how worried should we be about that. I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the Utah bill, is it's, it's crazy. It's obviously unconstitutional. It has all sorts of problems, many of which you described, uh, you know, and, and doesn't take, you know, these ideas of like parental consent and parental access, uh, I think the parental access one is the most concerning. What if you're a teenager and you're estranged from your parents? What if your parents are divorced and you don't have a relationship with one of them, but they get to have access to your uh, communications? That seems problematic. How are they determining, you know, what process does Utah have to make sure that it's actually the parent who is getting access to this communication. There are all sorts of risks, you know, if, uh, you know, what was this red team, does it say? Like, did anyone think about how this might be abused to allow people who should not have access to kids' communications to have access to kids' communications? I, I see tremendous things that are problematic. The, the curfew aspect, like, is, you know, again, just like pure nanny statism. Like, I think most parents don't want their kids on social media or on computers like late at night. I understand that. Again, that is something that parents have some level of control over themselves, right? There are tools for that, that, that take, or like at night, you take away phones or, you know, turn off computers or whatever, whatever the, the, the process is, and kids will try and get around it. Um, but kids are going to try and get around the, the law as well, right? 
you know, the, the other sort of amusing thing that I, I heard earlier this week uh, at, at, at this event I was at was, you know, in, in the cybersecurity world, there's the concept of the APT, the Advanced Persistent Threat. These are generally speaking like, you know, uh, Russian uh, hackers or, or North Korean hacker teams that are, you know, trying to hack in and steal data and all this kind of stuff. But somebody used the term the advanced persistent teenager <laughs> in that if teenager, anything, a, a more talented and resourceful agency. Yes. Yes. Even. And with 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 endless time on their hands and and endless persistence and willingness to get around anything, no matter what parental controls that you or a company puts on, kids are going to figure out ways to get around it. Part of me looks at like the curfew thing and laughs. What what do you think you're actually going to do? Kids are going to figure out how to change the clocks, get a VPN so it looks like they're coming from out of state. You know, there's all sorts of ways around these things, and the companies are going to try and it just becomes a sort of whack-a-mole race where the companies are trying to to fight fight all of these issues and are not going to have have a good solution. There there are so many problems with every aspect of it, and it's just this like wishful thinking of like, oh, we can just pass a law and make the bad stuff go away without any recognition of reality of how kids are, how people act, how, how any of this works. And so it, it is problematic. To get to your other point, I, I am really, really concerned about the fact that this is an area of sort of bipartisan blue and red agreement that something must be done that, you know, the 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 belief that clearly social media is the problem and that you know we have to attack social media rather than actually doing the work to figure out what what are the real problems and and i don't deny that there are there are risks for kids today and there are clear indications that there's been an increase in the rates of depression and self-harm and those are real concerns and we should be looking at that and figuring out how do you mitigate that but none of this looks like attempts to actually mitigate it. This is just like, we're just guessing what the solution is. And part of that is, you know, the, the incredible thing, and I think it was uh, Professor Eric Goldman who first pointed this out, and it's really stuck with me, is that a bunch of these bills, the California bill in particular, talks about like not experimenting on children, that social media has to stop experimenting on children. These laws are experimenting on children. They're assuming that these laws will somehow magically fix this problem that they see. And yet they do none of the work that they're demanding of the social media companies to make sure that these experiments, as they put it, these experiments are good, are helpful, are safe for kids. And in fact, so many of these things seem like increasing danger. Obviously the age verification we've already talked about, you're collecting all of this data, that you know should be private and now is, is suddenly put at risk. The giving anyone else access to someone else's account has huge risks. I already talked about some of the, the ones of estranged parent, kids whose political, religious views, whatever it might be, are different from their parents. There are lots of discussions that kids you know, especially teenagers as kids are growing up and, and figuring out their own identity, they're going to disagree with their parents. That's part of growing up. I think everybody goes through these phases, even if you have a, a good relationship. I mean, 
I, you know, had a, a, a fantastic relationship with, with my dad when I was growing up, but I would not want him reading, you know, like <laughs> reading. I, I didn't have email when I was in high school because I'm old, but like, you know, the communications that I did have with my friends in high school, like, I think to this day, you know, 30 years later, I would be horrified <laughs> even now <laughs> if my parents found out what I was talking to my friends about or, or, or doing with my friends. There are things that kids need to learn on their own. And like the idea that parents should be able to spy on it or, you know, and then sort of opening up this avenue for, for other people potentially to get access to, to kids' activity, I think is, is really, really dangerous and just it, again, it's this weird belief that that kids don't have agency themselves, that kids don't have rights themselves. And, you know, I don't know what it is about becoming an adult that makes adults forget what it was like to be a, to be a kid themselves and to assume that kids are helpless, that that they need to step in to, to do everything for them and that, that kids don't have agency, kids can't be taught right from wrong, kids can't be taught to understand when they're in an uncomfortable or dangerous or risky position and how to deal with it. Again, there, there are obviously always some situations that are, that are super dangerous and that we should put some level of guardrails on, but we should be very thoughtful and careful about how we're doing that and where we're doing that. And none of these bills are anything like that. And yet, across the board, at the state level, at the local level, at the federal level, a whole bunch of people have just decided that, no, we can just say that social media is bad and then put in place all these rules that have all of these these consequences, whether unintended or intended, and just assume that, oh, you know, we're helping the children, so therefore it's okay. One amusing thing to me about, you know, this red-blue alignment, you still end up with these weird differences. So under the yeah. Utah law, you have to give parents access to the accounts. And under the California law, you have to alert the minor that they're being tracked by the parent. <laughs> right. Which ties into another point that, you know, we're just not going to have time to get into of, of how ridiculous is it that the global internet or at, at the bare minimum, our national internet is being regulated or attempted to be regulated by states. That's like the dumbest possible way yeah. to go about this. And is impossible. I mean, the notion that all these states are going to sort of geofence their own little splinter net for, you know, Utah and whatnot. I think it does tie into this notion of like something must be done, which gets into a weird like side conversation. We're also not going to get into about the misunderstanding of like our constitutional system. Like just because Congress hasn't done something doesn't mean you as the state can step in. But I think there is this pressure where you're a politician, right? So your job is to pass legislation. You're not seen as doing your job if you say, look, there are these sort of grand forces of modernity or whatever, and it's really complicated. And yeah, some change is very rapid in our modern day. There's some weird forces. If you look at like falling birth rates and falling religiosity, like there are big forces at play. So we need to work on parents, you know, how, how they raise their kids. No, no, it's much easier to just say it's the Instagram that's that's right. doing it. It's like a total non sequitur, right? You know, the people in our society who are best equipped to deal with a time of rapid change are young people. Yeah. Like, they're, oh, yeah. Well, they're that's actually a, the one. 
and, and that's, this is actually really, really important. And, and I think it's lost in all of these discussions. And, and I had an article about it recently. And, and I've come across a few more studies that I, I may write about as well, which is that in general, the kids are actually all right. <laughs> like, and, and there are all of these studies that for most kids, for the majority of kids, social media is actually useful and good. And they learn how to handle it appropriately because everybody, not everybody, most people adjust and learn how to use these things appropriately. And for lots of kids, it has been a fantastic way to communicate, to find communities of interest, to find interesting information that is useful to them, to help discover who they are, to help find their own identity, to you know, find like-minded individuals, to have different and deeper and interesting and experimental sometimes conversations so that the, the studies actually show over and over again that kids mostly find these things really, really useful. One of the things that I hear from some people like, well, they're, they're hiding from real life. It's like, no, this is real life. The internet is also real life. You can communicate with people. Like the fact that you're communicating through a screen is different, sure, but it is still real life. And you can have important conversations. A lot of, you know, one of the things that, that I, I wrote about was like a lot of kids are using social media to like plan how to get together in person with their friends. And like there are all of these things that it is actually a really helpful tool. And a lot of the studies show that for on most factors, it's really great. You know, the, the one and, and over and over again, uh, people bring up this study that Facebook did, that Instagram did actually, about how teenagers feel about themselves when using Instagram. And the headline that everybody uses is uh, Instagram knows that teenage girls using Instagram, it makes them feel worse about body image issues. If you look at the actual details of the study, in context, it tells a very, very different story, which is that Instagram was studying 12 different things, 12 different issues. I, f I forget exactly what they, what all of them were, uh, and looked at teenage boys and teenage girls. And with teenage boys, on every one of the 12 things, the majority of them either said it made them feel better or no effect at all. And a very, very small percentage said it made them feel worse. With teenage girls, 11 out of the 12, it said it made them feel better or had no impact. And very, very small percentages said it made them feel worse. There was only one item where basically the amount of teenage girls who said it made them feel worse was effectively the same as the ones that made, said that made them feel better. It was about 33% in each case, and then another 33% that said no impact, and that was on body image. And the whole reason that Instagram did this study and had a slide which looks bad out of context that says we make body images worse for teenage or girls think we make body images worse was because they went through this study looked at 24 different categories 23 of them showed that they made people feel better and there was one where very very slightly made a larger percentage feel worse and instagram said this is a problem we should be doing something about mm -hmm. it and in fact yeah, so they, they were, were trying to they will not make that slide today. I assure well, you. Yeah, of course exactly. not. Yeah. They wouldn't dare. They, they wouldn't dare because it, it's now been turned into this thing that is used over and over again. It's like the proof that like, oh, Instagram like deliberately is making children feel worse, which is like, no, 
they decided to study this because, and then when they realized that, they said, this is something that we need to do something about. And, and that leads to this other issue, which is like, there's this general belief that all companies are like deliberately trying to harm children for profit. Like that, like you hear this line all the time that they know what they're doing and they're doing it because it, it's profitable. There's no world in which harming children is profitable. Like, I'm sorry, like that is not happening that these companies have huge teams that are trying to figure this out because they don't want to harm children because they know that's bad. That's bad for their bottom line. It's bad for their, their soul, right? They know it's bad. They're doing this. They have trust and safety teams whose job is to figure this stuff out and to study this stuff because they don't want to do that. They want to make people happier. They want people to enjoy it. They want people to find use out of it, not to make them depressed, not to make them want to hurt themselves. That's not good for business, let alone just good for society. And they, they recognize that and they're trying to do it. They don't need a law to come in and say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. They know that, you know, and, and so I, I get frustrated to some extent of this idea that like the companies aren't trying, the companies are trying, like you can pick out maybe like some, some small dark web forums that are like trying to cause harm and, and wreak havoc or whatever. The big companies, there's there's nothing good that comes out of them like causing harm to children. They know they're going to get these horrible headlines as well. They're trying to do stuff, but the fact is, like society is complicated, and bad stuff happens, and you can't just just immediately assume that they're in this to 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 cause harm and that the law will somehow magically stop the bad things from happening in the real world by telling kids not to go on, they can't go on social media after 1030. Well, I think your message of the kids are mostly okay <laughs> is a good note to end on. This has been so much fun, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on. We're going to, there's just so many aspects of this. We're going to have yeah. to put a, a pin in. I, I actually think we could maybe make pretty much an entire episode and we may yet just lining up Governor Cox's law and arguments <laughs> with the Supreme Court case Brown versus uh, Entertainment yes. Merchants Association. It is like yes. point for point why that law is going to fail. So I will just leave that there sort of as a preview. Mike has a great Tech Dirt article on what he was just talking about, about the kids being okay. So I think that's the one of all your work that we're going to put in the show notes for people to <laughs> check out so they can kind of continue this episode out. And that's about it, Mike. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I can go on on this topic forever, <laughs> as you, as you know. So uh, I, I appreciate you uh, letting me rant on. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, sometimes I wonder if there's like two or three of you. Uh, so <laughs> I respect the fact that I need to let you go and go back to uh, doing all the good work that you do. So thank you so much. <laughs> sure. No problem. Thanks for having me. This was a fun conversation. I am Corbin Barthold. I've been joined by Mike Masnick. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.